This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to day two of Global Supply Chain Week. I'm Mike Bowden-Distel, I'm head of Intermodal Solutions, and I'm going to host this session with Herman Hackstein. Herman's the president of the Private Railcar Food and Beverage Association. That's a trade association that represents a number of companies in the food and beverage uh, industry. He was also the CEO of MHW Group, retired from that uh, company about two years ago. Herman, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate the time. Great. Well, to, to start off, just why don't you tell us a little bit more of the, of the work that you're doing with this private rail car food and beverage association um, and how the, the background from MHW uh, sort of led to that. Sure. I'd be happy to. So um, during my tenure as uh uh, CEO of MHW Group, one of our businesses was Cryotrans, which was a uh, rail supply chain company. We contract, build, and lease rail cars to the food and beverage industry. Our cars were either refrigerated or insulated, so our market tended to be food and beverage. So during that period of time, um, you know, as a CEO, I try to get out, meet my customers on a regular basis, uh, understand whether we provide the right services and whatever. And, um, you know, the great news was most of my customers said the, the services they were getting from our business was great, but what could I do about the railroads? So, um, you know, we, uh, I, I, you know, and I, I kept hearing the same message um, over and over from so many customers. So I finally said, you know, guys, uh, in fun, I just said, Look, you need to stop crying on my shoulder. Maybe we could get a little group together, you know, a little support group. And uh, so I invited all the customers to our offices and you know, it's the first time anybody did that. I mean, you're talking about large CPC companies that are sitting beside each other and and talking about and sharing like stories. And and it was very revealing for those guys. They were like, wow, you're you're you know, same pinches in the supply chain that we have. And you know, it'd be great to talk about that. So we decided to form an informal association and then we decided to make it a formal association. And that became the food and beverage, uh, it's called PERFA for short, but it's a private rail car food and beverage shipper association. And, you know, the only key is in, in order to be a member of that, you actually had to have rail assets. So important skin in the game. These are customers who are spending money on rail, whether they ship or not. And, um, you know, so anyway, the group got together and um, they made me president of that group. And, um they basically, you know, benchmarking best practices, educating, talking to the railroads as a bigger group now. So now instead of talking about your own volume, you're talking about a large group of volumes. And then finally, <clears throat> we realized that we had to do some lobbying in D.C. So, you know, we became a voice in D.C. So after I sold the business a year and a half, two years ago, um, I, I wanted to stay involved. I think it's good cause. So I, I asked to remain on as president. So I'm a volunteer. I, I don't get paid. And uh, I find that very good because there's nobody that's actually influencing me. And I'm not concerned about, you know, offending anybody. So, so yeah, so I'm a volunteer today. I probably spend quite a few hours a week on it. I spend a lot of time in DC or talking to DC and uh, just trying to promote, let's make rail easy or at least user-friendly uh, for shippers, period. 
That's great. That's very uh, generous of you um, to, to, to do that. Uh, and I'm sure the, the companies that you work with really appreciate that. Um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you sort of think about um, sort of the competitiveness between rail and, and, and truckload and some of these CPG companies. I mean, a lot of them we talk to use both, sometimes in the same lanes. If, if you're a, a, a chief supply chain officer, someone running logistics for a CPG company, how do you think about either introducing rail into a truckload uh, network or sort of balancing the, you know, the cost benefit of, of rail intermodal versus the, the better service of truck? So, you know, if you're a supply chain guy today, you probably read so much about rail in the newspapers and its inability to serve customers. It's probably the last thing you're going to do, right? But if you were that same guy three, four years ago when capacity was so tight, you couldn't find a truck for $5 a mile, right? You were probably kicking yourself for saying, why don't I have a more diverse supply chain, right? So, so we manage a lot of supply chains at CrowdTrans on behalf of our customers. It's one of the services we performed. And I would always promote diversity, diversity, diversity. You got to have some intermodal. You got to have some boxcar. And a lot of people hadn't considered that, right? But you got to have some boxcar. You got to have some trucks. I mean, that it's just, it's the right way to set yourself up. So, but, you know, if you're going to go into a rail environment, right? So there has to be, you got to have heavy product. You got to have long distance. Um, and and probably utilize forward inventory in your supply chain today, right? So rail works really good in a forward deployed inventory supply chain. So, so, and the other thing is inventory value and inventory terms. So, so we're talking about the vegetable industry and, and know that one well, right? But vegetables typically only come out of the ground once a year. So, so you get a lot of these younger supply chain guys, oh, I got inventory turns, you know, rail negatively impacts an inventory turn. Well, your potato or your vegetable, whatever it is you're manufacturing, it only comes out once a year. So whatever stage it's in, your potatoes only get one turn a year. So why don't we just try to maximize that, right? So, so if there's a way for you to produce inventory at an extremely efficient pace and then forward deploy it to another part of the country and let it sit there and wait for the customer order, I mean, that's an ideal situation for rail. So so if you have a just-in-time, short production run, high-value items, rail's probably not something you're going to sign up for. But if you have something where you have a longer chain and you can forward deploy it, then that's that's really an ideal, um, that's a really an ideal situation. But talking to somebody that understands rail is probably, if you're especially some of the new supply chain guys today, and this is no insult to them, I mean, Rail hasn't been that popular since the 60s or 70s, right? So you've got a lot of guys that are out there that mentored under somebody or work for a business that just, other than intermodal, respect intermodal is a form of rail, but boxcar rail, which is that third set of a diverse supply chain, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's not a lot of guys that lead you into that. So you need to talk to some people that can at least give you some tips. Yeah, and, and one of those changes over the you know, number of decades that you mentioned has been the shift to privately owned rail cars, whereas the, the rails don't own as much of a percentage of the, of the total rail cars that are being moved. Can you talk a little bit about how that has impacted shipper supply chains? So, so the, <clears throat> the privatization of rail cars has been going on since the 50s. So um, it started in the tanker car industry. Um, obviously, it doesn't make sense to ship uh, edible oil uh, to the West Coast and then pick up a load of, uh, you know, diesel fuel and bring it back, right? I mean, you can't. So, 
So, so the railroads are saying, hey, you know, you guys need to buy your own tank cars. That's the way it started, right? So if you're the chemical guy, we don't want to mix your chemical with anything else. So, so in the 70s, they started saying the same thing about refrigerated cars. In the 90s, they started saying the same thing about uh, inner, um, insulated cars. So, so, so what's happened is, is the railroads have encouraged guys to go out there and invest in their own private cars. And what that's, and, and the railroad allows you to ship them on their trains, obviously. So, so that's allowed you to open the door for, for that extra element of diversity in your supply chain, right? So before you'd call the railroad and say, I'd like to have a refrigerated car. And the answer would be, hey, we don't have any of those. Boom, it's closed, right? But now, you can go out and get that refrigerated car and it's yours. It's dedicated yours. So you can plan where you want it to go, when you want it to go there. So, so allowing private cars and that uh, has allowed um, different guys to do a lot of different things um, in their supply chains. So it's a great thing. Well, that's good. It sounds like it gives the shippers more options uh, there. Um yeah, you mentioned uh, you did a lot with box cars, and you know we hear a lot about box cars that, that sort of as a sort of declining market, not a lot of availability. No one wants to build them because they're expensive to build. W- what are you seeing in sort of the, the the box car, you know, lease market right now, and sort of what's the availability of those cars like? And then you mentioned refrigerated cars. What's the availability of those like uh, presently? So, fifty um, percent. Let's talk about box cars first. Fifty percent of all box cars that are on the rail today have to be retired in the next few years, three to five. And so let's talk about that for a minute. So a, a rail car, uh, if it was built before the 80s, it has a 40-year life. Since the 80s, it has a 50-year life. So um, there's things that you can do to a 40-year life car to extend it to a 50-year life car. But once a car gets to 50 years, that's it. That's all. There is no... You can't, even if you've maintained that car impeccably and rebuilt it 100, you, 50 years, it's done. And that, you know, based on the FRA standards, AAR standards, it's like the metal fatigue, whatever. It's just not, it's just not safe anymore. So, so a lot of the box cars that are running on the rail today are bumping up against this 50 year anniversary. So and many of them had a 40 year anniversary and were rebuilt. So now they're up against that. That's it. That's all you're going away. So. A lot more expensive to build a boxcar today than it was, you know, 40, 50 years ago. And there's a lot fewer people that are willing to invest in those boxcars because of how long it's going to take to get a return on that investment. So the railroads certainly aren't lining up. They're getting some, but they're not lining up to get a lot. And so right now, if you look at production orders, about 30% of the boxcars that are falling out in the next three to five years have been replaced with new orders. So, so that gap is huge, right? So, so there's going to be a, if you're in the paper industry or if, if you're in the dry cereal type industry, you know, the, the dry goods industry and boxcar is a big part of your supply chain. You, this it's now like, because I think production is probably three years out. Boxcar production lines are pretty busy because they haven't been building boxcars for years. Right. And now all of a sudden we're having to produce as many as we can. So it's difficult to get boxcars. Steel is expensive and you need to line up now or you need to have an alternate plan. Now, of course, a great alternate plan is intermodal. When those boxcars weren't, were, were built 40, 50 years ago, there really wasn't a good intermodal program. So, so intermodal is out there. It's more expensive than boxcar, but 
if you're going to include cost of owning the equipment and all the other things, it's certainly a really good evaluation to go through and understand whether you need to invest in a box car or not. So, um, so insulated car types and refrigerated car types, um, also very scarce and long lead times. I think they're out more than a year now. Uh, people say the price is high, but it, it's not, not that the price is high because the makers are trying to become very wealthy all of a sudden, you know, prices are high because all prices are high. You look at steel, you look at petroleum products, um, you know, uh, all of the raw materials to build those cars, it has really changed, especially in the last couple of years. Yeah. So it sounds like to lease some of those, those cars, it's going to get more expensive every year than the, the previous year. If, if more are coming out than, than going into the market, you know, you know barring something changing in the, in, in the demand. Um, you know, I also want to ask you, I mean, we hear so much about rail service and it's been such a focus. You mentioned you do lobbying in, in Washington. You know, any thoughts on the current iteration of the Surface Transportation Board and any thoughts on some of the many things that they are um, you know, trying to, to, to look at, either reciprocal switching or getting Union Pacific to stop doing the embargoes or um, streamlining the rate cases? Any thoughts on any of those things that you'd like to share? Yeah, and, and I thank you for that question because it's an opportunity to plug one that you know, we're not hearing too much about. But one of the things that uh, PERFBA has really worked with uh, STB on, and that it is in on their list of considered rulemakings, is FMLM, first mile, last mile. So um, we hear these performance statistics from the railroads, and the railroads have to, re- um, have to provide these performance statistics to the STB on a monthly basis. And it talks about terminal dwell time and velocity of rail cars. And, and, and as a group, we're just like, who really cares about that, right? We, we come from a trucking world or we come from a, you know, a delivery world, right? It's like, it, 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 if we order it for Tuesday at 5, we want it Tuesday at 5. I don't care if it's spent 55 days in a terminal. As long as I get it Tuesday at 5 o'clock, I don't care, right? So... So we've really pushed with the STB, this first mile, last mile measuring tool. And we're doing, we're going through some different um, uh, tests of that. And, and what we're basically saying, you know, and you guys have heard this, supply chain guys have certainly heard this. If you don't measure it, right, you can't, you, know, you can't manage it, right? So, so the railroads have done a great job of measuring stuff that doesn't mean anything to their customers. It means something to them maybe, but it doesn't mean anything to their customers. So we're pushing first mile, last mile. And now, once we get an established and agreed upon first mile, last mile, that becomes what we feel is very important underlying. So one of the things that, that you, you added to that list there was reciprocal switching, right? So, so, so if we get reciprocal switching legislation passed, which we hope we do, I mean, they've had it in Canada for decades and it hasn't killed them. So, so but if we get that, you know, the railroads are going to push back for some kind of a, a a rulemaking that says, but you can't do reciprocal switching unless, right? I mean, there has to be a reason why they would be forced into reciprocal switching. And we think that should be first mile, last mile service standards, right? So if, if we have a, 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 let's say, let's say the number's 80% on time. If your cars are there 80% on time or more, then you don't have a legitimate case to go to the to the, go to the STB and ask for a reciprocal switch. But if it's below that, you automatically, no need for a hearing, no need for like some lengthy process. It's like here, 
My railroad has been less than 80% time for the last 30 days. I want to have another railroad come in and consider this. So, you know, and it's the same thing with a, a lot of the other rulemakings that are going on, like detention demerge, right? That's something that we had the rules changed a year and a half ago now, and the railroads are still not following the rules exactly. But one of the things that we talked about is you shouldn't get a detention demerge bill if that rail car service didn't arrive when it was supposed to arrive. Like, how do you plan on unloading something when it wasn't supposed to be there that day? So first mile, last mile would suggest that if your car isn't on time, either the first or last mile, then they couldn't send you a demerge bill because you would have had to make some other arrangement to get that car unloaded and moved out, right? Your labor wasn't there for the day it did come. So anyway, FMLM is really important to us. And I think, you know, and, and this is going to sound, I got to be careful about so there's a couple other things going on. So is it even possible? You mentioned you started this with rail service. Is it even possible to get rail service to improve right now? Well, I think everybody knows the statistic that over the last five years, five years ago, that railroads got rid of 30% of their workforce. And admittingly, they they overreacted. It's kind of like the opposite of what all our tech companies today are saying. Hey, we got to lay people off because we overreacted and hired too many. Well, the railroads overreacted and, and, and you know, got rid of too many. And so it's a, not an easy job to train people for. It's not a great job. I mean, look at us. We get to sit in an office, you know, enjoy air conditioning and a sandwich in the cafeteria. Those guys are like walking through rail yards, freezing, you know, freezing cold or whatever. And, you know, it, it's not a pleasurable job. But anyway, so trying to hide, hire people to do that. It's been very, very difficult. The railroads thought everybody would line up to get their jobs back, and they're not. So so where do we go from here, right? So we need people to come back just so that we can actually get some, I'll say, positive improvement in, in service. So anyway, so the last piece about the STB, right, is, is you know, it's great. They jumped in for eliminating embargoes a little while ago, but then the UP, like, Three weeks later, the UP turned and they started doing embargoes again. You know, that the, the STB had this thing about detention and demurrage and, you know, the railroads hadn't really done it. And, and, and I don't want to sound like I'm, uh, yeah, I, I really wish the railroads would accept the fact that they are a federally regulated industry. And if that regulating body, which in this case is the Surface Transportation Board, says you can't use an embargo anymore to, to as an excuse to stop serving a customer. They respect that as that's the rule, right? That's the rule. So, but instead they just use legal, you know, that they, they file all kinds of appeals and, and you know, that it's cheaper for them to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on lawyers than to put up with what the SDB wants them to do. And I just wish, like, somebody would remind these guys, hey, you're federally regulated. You know, if 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 the federal regulators told the airline association, you got to stop flying over or whatever, they do that immediately. I mean, it's not, there's no discussion point. There's no, it's like, but yet the railroads are like, oh, we don't want more regulation. We it's, we need to get back to basics, understanding that they're federally regulated. Long speech, sorry. Yeah, well, I think uh, you bring up a lot of good points there. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, it just really highlights the important work that you guys are doing. 
at that association is that these, these shippers need someone on their side to just stand up for them and to deal with those groups because it's a dispersed, you know, set of interests, whereas the railroads, it's a very concentrated set of interests. And um, they go around doing what they maybe should be doing on service, you know, a, a lot of the time. So um, really, uh, you know, I'm sure that everyone uh, appreciates, um, you know, the work that you guys do. Uh, we're about out of time, but how do people uh, reach out to you if they want to join the association, learn more, et cetera? Yeah, so the association has a website, prfpaperpa.com. Uh, um, you can reach out to me at my personal email address, which is ataxdnetperfa.com or ataxdnetyahoo.com if you want to reach me. Um, and I'm sure that you folks have uh, contact information. I'm happy to help people. I'm happy to get folks to join the Private Rail Car Food and Beverage Shippers Association. And, you know, if anybody wants some rail advice, uh, happy to happy to share that. Great. Well, thanks very much, Herman. Thank you.